0: You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Well, turn with me in your Bibles if you're able to also remain standing to Genesis chapter 32. And as is our custom, we are moving through chapter at a time, usually through Genesis. And if you're not uh, used to reading through this amount of scripture, I think it's a good exercise uh, for us. But if you for any reason need to sit down, feel free to do so. But we're in Genesis chapter 32 this morning, and it is my great privilege to bring God's word to his people. Genesis chapter 32. Jacob went on his way and the angel of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place, Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir to the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus your servant says your servant, Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I've sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed He divided the people who were with him and and the flocks and the herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, verse 9, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant for with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So verse 13, he stayed there that night and from what he had, he took him with him. He took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. Verse 22, the same night arose that the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children. He crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him. Please tell me your name. But he said. Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. Saying for I have seen God face to face. And yet my life has been delivered. Verse 31. The sun rose upon him. As he passed Penuel. Limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of his thigh, of the thigh. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. As we have just read, we are continuing in our study of the book of Genesis this morning, and we come to chapter 32, in this great and glorious history of redemption. If you're just joining us, Jacob, the third of the three major patriarchs, has just divorced himself, finally, from his overbearing father-in-law, Laban. And now Jacob, in obedience to God, is heading back home to Canaan, to the place where his father, Isaac, resides. Jacob, however, is not traveling alone. You'll remember when he first arrived in Padan Aram 20 years prior, he only had the shirt on his back. He had no family, he had no possessions. It was just him in search for a wife. But now Jacob is leaving Padan Aram on the way back to Canaan, and now he has two wives. He has 11 sons, 11 children, and a whole host of possessions. God has indeed prospered Jacob. Despite Jacob's own doubts and failures, God has remained faithful to the covenant that God made with his father, Isaac, and his father, Abraham. God has indeed prospered Jacob. But God has not only prospered Jacob, he has also protected Jacob. In every vignette that we've covered in Jacob's life, we've seen God preserving and protecting Jacob. First, we saw God protect Jacob from his brother Esau after he, after he stole Esau's birthright and blessing. Then we saw God preserve and protect, protect Jacob from his father-in-law Laban, who wanted nothing more than to keep Jacob there for his own prosperity. And most of all, we have seen God protect Jacob from Jacob. Even on this new journey back home to Canaan, the very first thing we see in this new scene is God protecting Jacob. In fact, look at the first first two verses of chapter 32. The scene is set. Jacob went on his way, verse 1, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, this encampment of angels... He said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Mahanaim means two camps. And it's two camps because as Jacob camped, he discovered that there was another encampment beside him. An encampment of angels there to protect Jacob, the patriarch, to see him through all the way home. And of course, this was welcomed protection. This is welcomed protection because Jacob is about to move into the most terrifying moments of his entire life. The prospect of death at the hands of his murderous brother, Esau. See, in order for Jacob to go all the way home, back to Canaan, back to the promised land, he has to pass through Edom. And we know from previous texts that that is where Esau is. And the last time Esau and Jacob were together, Esau didn't exactly have warm feelings toward his brother. In fact, we read this in Genesis 27, verse 41. Now, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So Jacob is certain that he will be in the crosshairs of his brother Esau, who happens to be an incredible hunter. He will be in the crosshairs of his brother's bow as he heads back to Canaan. And so in our first of three scenes this morning, we see Jacob in full on panic. In fact, in the first 3 or rather in the first scene we see three movements in Jacob. We see panic, prayer, and then persuasion. Before he prays and before he persuades, he first panics. Look at verse 3. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing his messengers. This is what I want you to say. Say this, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants I have sent to tell you to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor, mercy, grace in your sight. But look at what the messengers come back with in verse six. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Moses, our author says, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed the best translation I can come up with in English is that Jacob was scared stiff. I don't know if you've ever been that afraid before for your life. You know death is imminent. He is greatly afraid and distressed. He is paralyzed in fear. He's panicked. The ominous report from the messenger's shook Jacob, our patriarch, to the core. We got your message to your brother Esau. He received your message. Oh, good. What did he say? Nothing. But he's coming. Oh, good. He's coming. Yeah, but there's 400 men with him. This is not good news. In those days, 400 men is the standard size of a militia. Why would he bring 400 men? What could that mean? Maybe they want to say hello as well. Maybe they want to check on the prosperity of Jacob. But Jacob, our patriarch, is stuck. He's stuck, isn't he? He can't go back. That's a slow death at the hands of Laban. He would be disobedient to God to go back. And now he's compelled to go forward, but now he's got 400 men with Esau coming at him with no other indication that peace is in the heart of Esau. He's stuck. He's panicked. He's fearful. So what is the trickster to do? Remember, Jacob's name means deceiver. The trickster, the heel catcher. The one who's always got something up his sleeve, something, something he can maneuver. What is he to do? The next thing we see Jacob do is pray. Oh, if this isn't an indication of maturity in the life of this patriarch in process, I don't know what is. He prays. Verses 9 through 12 is not only Jacob's first prayer recorded in Genesis, it is also the longest recorded prayer in all of Genesis. Jacob prays. Look at verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, And God of my father, Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. Listen to Jacob's prayer. Look at verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan. And now I have come, become two camps. Please deliver me. Deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. Notice the honesty. I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, then he calls upon the promises of God in verse 12. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Who is this? Is this the same Jacob? Is this the trickster? The deceiver? The manipulator? As we've been saying, Jacob, like all of us, is a work in progress. And instead of trying to twist or manipulate the situation, instead, Jacob honestly reaches out to the Lord of hosts for help. He's honest before God. In other words, Jacob is maturing. He's maturing. He's finally coming to grips with his own weakness and he's reaching out for God's help. Have you ever come to grips with your own weakness? Or have you always had one other move in your back pocket? First, in his prayer, he acknowledges the, his unworthiness. Then he acknowledges the sheer grace that God has shown him. Then he declares the faithfulness of God and calls upon the promises of God. And then finally, he asks for deliverance. In his honest fear, he asks for God to save him from the hands of Esau. As another writes, Jacob includes within his prayer elements of invocation, confession, and petition. And he references God's word in the beginning of his prayer and at the end of his prayer. This is what you have said to me, O God. This is a man who is coming to grips with his own weakness and there he is therefore reaching out for deliverance from panic to prayer to now persuasion. In order to convince Esau that Jacob is a changed man and not the same trickster who stole his birthright and blessing, Jacob puts together an incredible gift. I cannot overstate how incredible this gift is that Jacob puts together for Esau. He bundles together over 500 livestock to send ahead of him to his brother Esau. So as to say, I am giving back the blessing that I stole from you. The livestock that you see belong to your servant, Jacob. This is what he said to tell his servants. Drove after drove after drove. These these belong to Jacob, but they're a gift for you, Esau. Jacob's behind us. He's coming. Drove after drove, Esau would hear That Jacob is changed. He's giving back his blessing that he stole. Repentance, as we've said before, is not merely the feelings of guilt that come over you when you've done something wrong. Biblical repentance is not merely feeling bad for something you've done. It's a complete change in the whole person. It's not, it's not sorry. That's not repentance. Being sorrowful for what you've done is a part of repentance, but biblical repentance is not only a change of mind, it's a change of attitude, and it's a change in life direction. What can I do to make right what I have done wrong? And here is a illustration, an example of a man repenting. He is coming to grips with his failure. He is praying to the God of his salvation for deliverance. And he is giving back what he has stolen. He is repenting. He's changing direction. And what an example for all of us. Now we'll get to see what happens between Esau and Jacob. In our next chapter, we have their meetup, their meeting is fully detailed in chapter 33 of Genesis. But chapter 32 ends with an unexpected turn. No one reading this narrative for the first time could possibly anticipate what happens next. I don't know how many times I've read chapter 32, and it still boggles my mind. And this new scene is set up. He panics, he prays, he tries to persuade. And this new scene now comes upon us in verses 22 and 23. Listen to how Moses sets up this new scene in verse 22. The same night, make note of it, it is at night this is happening. At night, he, Jacob, arose and took his two wives... His two female servants, his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. That is the the crossing where the river is, is most shallow, where you can get through. Still dangerous, but he crosses the ford of the Jabbok River. Verse 23, and he took them, that is his family and his possessions, and he set them across the stream and everything else that he had. To say that Jacob is taking drastic measures is an understatement. To journey across the Jabbok River would have been a risk to take in the daylight. But here he is going at night with 11 children. I can't go to Walmart with my kids without without panic. He's taking his family and his possessions and his 11 children at night in order to cross them safely across the river. And after his family safely crosses, for some reason, we don't know, he heads back to the other side of the Jabbok River and he is left totally alone in the dark. So he thought. Suddenly, in the middle of the night, while he is alone he is tackled to the ground. An unnamed assailant strong arms him and takes him down. Look at verse 24. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, that's easy to read through and go, okay, they wrestled all night, but I don't know if you've ever tossed and turned in your bed all night. That feels like an eternity, right? When you can't sleep, you're tossing to and fro, and you're not wrestling anyone, but you wake up that next morning, you feel like you did. All night long in lock with another person. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, details it this way. He says, the assailant was silent and nameless. But Jacob, no pushover himself, rose mightily to the occasion. And that long night, what was it, six hours, seven hours, eight hours? Became one of burning sweat, dripping hair and beard, and slipping appendages. There came brief periods of labored breathing and then renewed fury and gouging and pulling and butting. And then more rage and more pain and thrust and smothering and frustration all night until the morning. So the question is who is this? <laughs> and why is he wrestling Jacob? Is it Esau? Oh, maybe Esau broke from his 400 men and just wanted a piece of Jacob all by himself. And he saw Jacob in the night, separated from his family and thought, this is the time I will take down my brother. Is this two brothers wrestling in the night? Look at verse 25. When the man, this unnamed assailant, saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. With one touch of his finger, Jacob's hip was totally dislocated. This is not Esau. Esau is strong, but not that strong. Jacob knew in that very moment that he was not wrestling with a mortal man. But if the assailant, who is unnamed still, had the power to dislocate his hip with one touch, why didn't he do it at the beginning? Why did he wrestle with Jacob through the night? Why did he allow Jacob to think that he could prevail over the man only to just touch his hip socket and send him out of joint, lame and crippled? It's as if the assailant wanted Jacob to experience the peak of his strength only to show him how weak he really was. The man says, let me go. The day has broken. The sun is rising. Let me go. But Jacob cries out, I will not let you go until you bless me. Jacob knew who was wrestling with him at this point. The assailant could be none other than Yahweh himself, a manifestation of the Lord of hosts, the only one who can call blessing upon Jacob. The only one who we'll discover in a moment can change his name. This is a manifestation of God. This is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. And so we ask the reader, we must ask this question. What kind of God would condescend like this? To wrestle with man. To be prevailed against by his own creation. What kind of God is this? Notice it's hard to miss the desperate cry from Jacob, our patriarch. I need your blessing. Notice the cry of weakness. I need your blessing. I need you, God. I am convinced that unless I have your favor, I have nothing. I will not let you go until you bless me. I've got no other tricks. I've got no other schemes. I need your blessing. I'm not going to let you go. And then God asks a question that sends a shockwave from Genesis 32 to your heart and mine. And the question comes in verse 27 What is your name? What is your name? Jacob is alone. He doesn't have his children there. He doesn't have his wives there. He doesn't have his father Isaac there. He's alone. And the God of glory says, What is your name? God knew his name. God had formed that little hip that he just dislocated. So, why did God ask him? God wanted Jacob to hear his name again. See, Jacob's very name is an admission of guilt. What is your name? I'm Jacob, I'm a fraud. I'm a, I'm a failure, I'm a trickster, I'm a deceiver. That's who I am before holy God. What is your name? I'm a sinner, born in sin, born deserving the wrath of God. I am Jacob, I am a deceiver. That is true of Jacob and that is true of all of us but notice grace upon grace. That is not the truest thing about Jacob. And for those saved from the wrath of God in Christ, that is not the truest thing about us either. Look at verse 28. Then he said, that is God, your name shall no longer be deceiver. Jacob, but Israel for you have Striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Same word he was praying for as he was asking in prayer for deliverance from Esau. Oh God, that you would deliver me from Esau. And now he's saying, I have striven with God, I've seen him face to face, and God has delivered me. Jacob stole Esau's blessing from his earthly father, and he knew full well he was not going to steal a blessing from his heavenly one. It had to be granted. It had to be given. There's no manipulating God. You can manipulate human beings until your dying day. You can earn a living that way. You can prosper in that way. But in the end, there is no manipulating your Heavenly Father. That blessing is only given, it's not even earned. Jacob knew with all his heart that God alone had to grant the blessing. And so changed is Jacob in this moment that God grants him a new name. You're not Jacob, you're Israel. Ironically, Israel means God prevails. I thought Jacob prevailed. God prevailed. So, scene one, panic, prayer, persuasion. Scene two, a traumatic wrestling with an unknown assailant who becomes known as the covenant keeping God of Israel, a renaming of Jacob to Israel. We know that from Jacob, from Israel, would come the 12 tribes of Israel. This is their lineage. Our final scene in this chapter comes with some of the most beautiful imagery, I think, in all of Genesis. The rising of the sun upon a limping yet grateful man. Look at verses 31 and 32. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Do you see the beautiful tension in verse 31? the warm beams of sunlight shining on the face of a limping man. If this isn't a picture of the Christian life, I don't know what is. The warm beams of God's sunlight, of his grace, shining upon the faces of his limping people. K.A. Matthews in his commentary writes, he says, quote, by this infirmity, the narrative indicates both the victory and the defeat of Jacob when he encountered the divine, End quote. Jacob, in other words, is crippled, yet he has never been more whole. Jacob is dislocated, yet he is made Right. Jacob has been wrestled down, but now he walks in sunlight. This theme of darkness and light in Genesis 32. I don't know if you caught that. He's praying in the night for deliverance. He's crossing his family across the Jabbok in the night. He's wrestling with God in the night. And then dawn breaks and he's walking with a limb. And I asked earlier, what kind of God would condescend like this to wrestle with man? To be prevailed against by his own creation. Beloved, as we close, the story of Genesis foreshadows the cross, perhaps like no other story in Genesis. The God-man, Jesus Christ, is overcome by the hands of his own creation. With spears in his side and nails in his hands, he's pinned to a Roman cross. He wrestles with humanity, this God-man, and is pinned. Yet, it was God's plan It was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God to crush his only son. So who's prevailing? Who's wrestling who? Little did we know that humanity was not the only one wrestling with God, the son on the cross. But the ultimate wrestling on the cross was between God, the son and his father And Jesus Christ, the better Jacob, would wrestle with his father on the cross for hours. The innocent son of God would be pummeled and pummeled and punished and punished by his father. Jacob deserved his pummeling. Christ did not. As another remarks, instead of Christ shouting, I will not let you go until you bless me, instead, Jesus, the better Jacob, cries out, I will not let you go until you bless them. Jesus, the Christ, does not say, Forgive me, as he's hanging on the cross. He's got nothing to be forgiven of. Instead, Jesus Christ says, What? Forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus doesn't say, deliver me from this moment. He says, deliver them from this moment. Beloved, in the gospel, Jesus is wrestled down and pinned to a Roman cross. And this was the definite plan of God so that all who would call upon his name in faith may experience discipline, but never punishment. Never punishment. But three days after his death, the sun would rise. Oh, I'm so excited to celebrate Easter Sunday with you. As the sun rises, so too the son of man emerges from his dark tomb to the light of God's sovereign grace. And death is no more. Punishment is no more. And thereby securing for his people the guarantee of life eternal with him in glory. So here's the so what part. What does that mean for you and me? What does all of this mean for you and me right now? And so here's just a series of questions as I've been wrestling, wrestling with this text. And now you are wrestling. How would someone describe your life? Would they describe you as someone who has a limp? Or would they describe you as someone who has it all together? Have you been dislocated by God's grace? Have you been humbled by his grace? Have you experienced the weakness of your strength? And have you experienced the strength of your weakness? Have you laid a hold of your only hope in God in Christ and said yourself, I will not let you go until you bless me. I have no other hope in this life or in the life to come unless God the Father through the Son blesses me. Have you cried out from your soul's deepest places? I will not let you go. May the Lord grant that the sunlight of his grace rise upon us as we limp out of here, humbled yet victorious. There is nothing like the cross of Christ that makes you feel humbled, dislocated, and at the same time victorious. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong.